You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code PODCAST10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi there, Darius. Hey, Maggie. It's good to see you. How are you? I'm doing okay. Doing okay. I think everybody kind of watching the Fed still. We had Jay Powell testifying in front of Congress again, um, saying, kind of reiterating, trying to be as hawkish as possible, right? Committed on, strongly committed to inflation. But it was really interesting to watch the stock market kind of seemed like it was ignoring it for most of the day. We had um, what looked like a little bit of a rebound going on, but it, the kind of floor just dropped out a little bit at the end. They rolled over back into the red. Nothing huge in terms of selling, but just interesting to see that um, that negative sentiment or just or, or just lack of buyers, I guess, in the last half hour trade. Ten year bond yield down to three point one five. We had crude prices lower, of course, crypto. Uh, getting shredded again. Um, you know, what did you make of the market action today? Yeah, market action day was a, pretty interesting. I mean, we we're, so it's in the context of what we're observing here in, in our process of forty two macro as a potential market regime transition from what we call inflation, which is where the market's pricing in and accelerating inflation and growth slowing, to what we call deflation, which is where the market is pricing in uh, simultaneous decelerations of both of those factors. We saw you know pretty significant sell off in crude, although we rallied off the lows. Another big drawdown in, in energy prices, or sorry, energy stocks. A big drawdown in crypto. Uh, you're seeing emerging markets take it on the chin. Uh, so separate and apart from this sort of intraday rally in stocks, which it may itself be uh, be incrementally fueled by the post opex dynamics. Don't forget, we're two days after a pretty chunky mm. uh, opex removed a significant chunk of um, negative gamma. You know, I think this market is, is starting to sniff out um, this move towards deflation, which we're happy to unpack. So, Darius, when you say deflation, because there's this huge conversation, and, and it came up today during the testimony around inflation, the idea that they're trying to bring it down, but just because the rate is lower or it's decelerating or there are smaller increases, however you want to categorize that, that it's still going to get stuck at this really elevated level. That's what people, are, you know, the, especially those in the inflation camp, are really concerned about. When you're talking about deflation, are is it possible the way you look at it that it can be lower but still kind of stuck at a high level? Or do you see this thing going back down? Yeah. So just in terms from a risk management perspective, you know, our core process at 42 Macro, at least on the fundamental uh, forecasting side, really anchors on the rate of change of, uh, of primary economic variables like the rate of change of growth in the economy, 
the rate of change of inflation or the second derivative is what I mean by the rate of change. So yeah, the trend it change in those time series will have an important influence on dispersion across asset classes, both within and across asset classes. We back tested the six basis Sunday. Uh, but when you think about it from the perspective of the Fed, there are actual targets, levels that they're concerned about, um, not just in reported statistics, but also in market-based measures um, in terms of expectations, et cetera, which Powell outlined last week and further outlined this week. Happy to unpack those as well. Yeah. What did, what jumped out at you? Anything? Because he's, we're, we're, we're sort of hearing this similar message over and over again, but I know everybody parses everything they say to look for any change. Is there anything that jumped out at you today from the testimony? Yeah. So from the testimony specifically, no. Um, you know, what I thought, I thought he reiterated everything that, you know, quite frankly, I live tweeted about during last Wednesday's FOMC press conference, which is this is a Federal Reserve that is content with sending the economy into a what it hopes would be a mild recession in order to tackle it's what I consider. And I think Jay Powell himself considers uh, to be an inflation disease. It's, it's willing to amputate its arm or its leg in order to save the whole body, if you will, from the from the spoils of inflation. Um, so I think he did a decent enough job reiterating that amid a sea of nonsensical political uh, nonsense around gas prices and regulation, et cetera, et cetera. You know, these, these, these semi-annual testimonies are always fraught with politics. But when you read through the tea leaves, there wasn't actually much substance, uh, you know, sort of in terms of um, incremental information relative to what we heard from uh, heard from them last Wednesday. Yeah. And it's been interesting to watch the data because, as you said, this conversation's really turned very quickly and everyone's talking about recession because we saw, as as many had been predicting, those of you who've been worried about the economy, we're starting to see some of those early warning signs, those more forward-looking indicators, whether it's some of the manufacturing indicators or some of the early housing, start to turn really in the last week. And so I know that's got everyone thinking about inflation. want to play a clip right now because, as we've been discussing, the Fed and how behind the curve they may or may not be. Tian Yang weighed in on the subject in a recent expert view he did for us here at Real Vision. Let's listen to a clip of that, and then we'll talk on the other side. Right now, the market narrative is very much that, yes, the Fed is behind the curve. But in terms of how uh, fixed income markets should be behaving in the kind of a, a quote-unquote normal hiking cycle, I would say the behavior is not that bad, right? Um, your curves are generally bare, uh, bare flattened in terms of this hiking cycle, which is typically what you would expect. Um, if you look at some of the longer term things like five year, five year, if you look at term premium, you know, these things haven't haven't really um, gone gone to crazy levels. So for sure that there, there has been a lot of adjustment, clearly bond yields need to reset. Um, but, you know, you're not seeing the typical panic that that you would see if a Fed was truly not credible. If they truly weren't, you would probably see term premium um, rise a lot more. You actually probably see kind of um, curve steepening in response to um, Fed policy action. Whereas, because generally you see a, a flattening trend, it shows that at least the market is going to give the Fed some credibility that the Fed is serious about fighting inflation to the extent that they may be willing to engineer a recession, hence you get the curve flattening. So, you know, as of right now, again, these are things that we want to watch for in terms of whether that's truly a change, but the Fed still is, is credible in my view because, you know, they're still, they might be behind the curve, but they're still doing things to address it and the market's kind of giving, giving them some credit um, for it. And that full uh, expert view is available to Essential Plus and pro members on our website. So, you know, people taking the Fed at face value, I suppose, that they're more serious about it. I think it's an open question still, Darius, how much they can actually influence what's going on. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're targeting the demand side. We know there is some supply side issues involved here. Um, you know, 
Where do you come down on this? And I, th- I guess the question is, where are we with the bond market? I mean, the bond market's giving them some credit, but is the Fed leading the bond market or is the bond market leading the Fed? So right now, uh, that's a phenomenal question. And, and oh, by the way, I, I generally agree with uh, Tian, uh, Tian's uh, view. I mean, he's, a, he's another data-driven investor. I tend to side with a lot of data-driven macro risk managers. But just going back to your question, I think what Powell was most concerned about and he sort of articulated this several times, particularly in the last week or so, which is they're very concerned about long-term inflation expectations and the volatility associated with that becoming, quote unquote, unmoored, if you will, to borrow a phrase from our friend Jim Bullard uh, yesterday. Uh, so, Brian, I, I sent you a chart um, you know, from our, one of our decks that says Powell is fighting to maintain control over the bond market. And, and what this chart shows in the top panel is just a 10-year uh, three, 10, uh, 10 year, three month uh, yield spread. Um, that's a sort of a proxy for the growth expectation of the economy, uh, if you will. So Powell's really got growth expectations, at least still reasonably anchored because we have not seen a significant uh, flattening of that curve, generally by a, you know, kind of a bull, a bull steepening or sorry, bull flattening, uh, if you will, which you typically see into a, into a recession. But on the bottom, I think that's the more important, or so the middle panel is actually the more important chart, uh, which shows the term premium, which is a very wonky, uh, sort of academic measure that really is just trying to assess, you know, sort of how much uh, uh, premium investors demand for holding longer term maturities. Once you X out, you know, things like grow, the expected growth rate, the expected inflation rate, you know, the inflation risk uh, premium, et cetera, et cetera. And what you're left with is the term premium. And right now at minus six basis points, we're only in the eighth percentile of that on all daily observations going back to the early 1960s on this metric. And so what that's telling you is that the bond market believes the Fed has the Fed still has credibility with the bond market in terms of you know its inflation forecast, its growth forecast, and ultimately its desire to uh, to, to to sort of maintain that control by effectively sort of quashing out inflation um, really quickly and really effectively. Now, if at any point in time, as you can see from the chart going back to the sort of the mid to late seventies, all the way through the early eighties. The, you know, the Fed, you know, starting with off the burns really lost control. Off the burns was the Fed chair back in the 70s who really let the inflation genie out of the bottle, which obviously Powell was trying to avoid. He really let that genie out of the bottle. And you saw the term premium widen to just under 500 basis points over. So if you think about, you know, just without any change in growth or inflation expectations, you could have the bond 10-year treasury yield, you know, gallop three, four or 500 basis, not three, four, five, but more like two to 300 basis points higher just on a revision to the term premium, which again uh, is the bond market sort of um, you know pricing in of the uncertainty around Fed policy. So this is what Powell's hyper concerned about because again, mm. if you let the inflation genie out of the bottle, it's really hard to get that back in. Yeah, and that's that you know that that is why that that is one of the pillars of their mandate. You know, price stability. Totally. Um, we didn't. You know, it was it was less at the fore because of the sort of disinflationary slash deflationary period we were in. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
Question on bonds. Gary from the RV site, the 10-year Treasury rate peaked right at the top of the stock market in early 2000 and mid-2007. Per the title of this interview, why do you think rates will keep going higher this time? I would say, do you think we've seen the peak? And if not, what what's going to keep them elevated or what's different this time around? Yeah, I think that's a difficult question to answer in this particular juncture. What, the first part of your question, which is, have we seen the peak in rates? So we're, we're going to see new highs in rates if inflation continues to misbehave. You know, we've been talking about this for the past month or so about the potentiality for inflation misbehaving. It did misbehave in the May inflation reading. We did see a step function increase uh, in terminal theft funds rate expectations and policy rate expectations across the curve. And ultimately, that big shock higher in the UMIT, um, you know, five year forward inflation expectation, which really spooked the Fed is obviously, you know, filtering its way into the bond market. So we could continue on in this process. I mean, we've been I don't need to sort of uh, go into the details on the inflation statistics that would tell you that that risk is still very much on the table. We saw a broadening out of inflation, inflation data or inflation pressure uh, in the most recent meeting, the May reading, just to get throw a statistic at you. Uh, three-month annualized median CPI, which is everything in the CPI basket on a median basis, accelerated to 6.4% on a median ba- on a three-month annualized basis, fastest rate ever. So the broad basedness of inflation uh, is a real issue and has not been tamed yet, at least not according to the data. As it relates to the bond market, have we seen the highs in yields? I think that's a 50-50 uh, toss-up right now. It's a bit difficult to ascertain that at the present juncture. And, and, and generally speaking, just to have, you know, kind of take a step back from a risk management perspective, it's always difficult to catch falling knives in any market. Obviously, you'd be catching the falling knife in bond prices here. Um, so just be be careful with these types of questions. What's more important is understanding, you know, the the, the change, the potential change in the regime that we could be potentially favorable for the bond market, and that's something we do on a daily basis at Forty Two Macro. Brian, if you bring up that chart, uh, deflation is now the second most probable regime. So you know, going consistent with our you know, kind of grid framework, which we use, you know, the rates of change of growth and inflation to identify what regime the economy is in. Uh, we're actually using market signals, core market signals across 42 different markets, 12 different asset classes to now cast what regime the market is in. What is the market pricing in? And it's been consistently pricing in inflation. It's been the highest, most probable regime. And oh, by the way, there's 504 unique data points that go into that process every day to determine uh, what that market regime is. And now what we're starting to observe is that deflation is now the second most probable regime, which is actually consistent with our forecasts, which are calling for a phase transition in the economy to deflation. Again, growth slowing, inflation slowing uh, by sort of mid to late Q3. And so to answer the question just very succinctly, if we've seen the highs in bond yields, it's coming right on time. I'm not certain we've seen the highs in bond yields because I can see a scenario where inflation continues to surprise us to the upside uh, over the next month or two. And if that happens, we're going to see another step function increase in terminal Fed funds rate pricing. But if we don't see inflation surprise to the upside, then it's very likely we have seen the highs in bond yields. Yeah, that that and that's what's so hard because this is you're trying to gauge, you know, these supply chain issues in some way, not the demand, which was a little bit clearer. I mean, it's hard to forecast if China's going to close down because of COVID again. You know, these are the things that keep roiling us. I think when it comes to trying to get a handle on that, and why so many have gotten the timing on bonds wrong is there are people who think bonds are a good buy here, but they're just it's just so hard to plug in the 
timing part and that matters. So I think just echoing Darius sentiment, be careful um, in this environment. It's just a really, really difficult one. So the same question we get all the time, as you know, Darius, when it comes to stocks, it's that same feeling, you know, it, are, are we through the worst of it? Is it time to start buying? And the way Gallen put it um, in a question here from the RV side, I hope I'm saying your name right, or Galen, um, the average recession has roughly 25% decline in S&P earnings. S&P earnings are $204 as far as I can see. These are the numbers he's using or she's using. The average multiple on the S&P 500 is 15 times over time, I think. <laughs> so assuming the multiple doesn't overshoot, that's a 2300 on the S&P. Do you think this is worthwhile thinking? Thank you for walking through your thinking, by the way, so we can understand where you're coming from with that question. And I think the way I want to put it to Darius is, you know, people are looking at this decline from the top. Right. And obviously, Gallant also plugging in some some earnings uh, to that. But, you know, I've had people on the program say, I don't care what the decline is from the trough to the bottom now, because that's not that's not all the information I need to see whether maybe it's not going to go back to that level. You know, you got to plug a, a, a lot of other data in. So how are you what are you thinking about, Darius, as you try to figure out the trajectory here and the timing for for the S&P or for stocks? Absolutely. So if I get fired from my day job of, of helping professional and retail investors manage macro risk, I'll be a professor somewhere, uh, you know, maybe back in New Haven where, where I got my <laughs> degree. Uh, but I think this is a perfect question and phenomenal question, Gallon, if we're saying your name right. I apologize if we, we aren't uh, to kind of you know, unpack a few things. Right. So I'll start by just really quickly. Um, S&P earnings on a next 12 month forward basis, which you should be using to, uh, to help value the market on a forward looking basis, are currently at $228 per share. That's a new high. We've trended higher. We've not seen any significant earnings revisions, and we continue to trend higher um, on an earnings uh, per share basis. So that that's that's an issue. Um, if you think about the significant growth slowdown that we're likely to that we've already accumulated in terms of the financial tightening we're seeing, but we're likely to experience in realized terms over the next few months. And a couple more things I'd, I'd highlight. Um, that, again, this is a fantastic question. Great teaching opportunity here. They mentioned the word average several times in that average drawdown. Average earnings, you know, average multiple, average, average, average. Average is the most dangerous word in finance. Write this down. Average is the most dangerous word in finance. And the reason it's so dangerous is because most time series spend very little time at their average. The average itself is just a statistical concept. It, you know, we don't live in a world of empirically observed averages. We live in a world of, you know, deviations to the upside, deviations to the downside. And when you put it in an Excel spreadsheet or in a Python script, it becomes an average, right? And so we have to understand that there's nothing average about this particular setup or about any particular setup on an ex ante basis when you're managing risk in financial markets. So uh, just get away, get rid of, get yourself away from that. Try to be more Bayesian in your approach. You know, you need to use things like averages, things like, you know, mean standard deviation, percentiles, et cetera, Z scores to understand to how to contextualize risk on an ex ante basis. But at the end of the day, 2023, June 2023, or sorry, June 2022 is the only June 2022 in the sample. And it will only be the only June 2020 sample. So be aware of that. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Darius. And I think that's why, and thank you for the question. These are the kind of things we want you to ask because, uh, you know, this is the kind of sort of growth mindset that's going to help prepare you and help you make better, better informed decisions. And that's what we're all about. So Actually, thank you both right. for that. 
Appreciate you. And, and sorry, I, Galen, I, I actually didn't even answer your question. I went on a sort of a rant. My apologies. But to answer your question, no, I do not think this is this is the bottom. Again, we, we've studied bear markets very extensively at 42 Macro. In fact, in our latest uh, monthly macro scattering reports, a hundred some slides, a deep dive presentation on all the different cycles that matter. I think slides 100 to 104, where we walk through the five major bear markets uh, of the last hundred years, you know, the, you know, sort of the crash after the, the 1929 highs. I want to say there was a 1937 to 42, 73, 74, 2000 to 2002, and then lastly, 2007 to 2009. And what we found, you know, in those crashes, there's several uh, key takeaways, but two of them I think are most important, which is you always see these significant bear market rallies throughout the crash. You know, each one of those crashes had more than eight to nine, um, you know, substantial, what I would consider 8% plus or more. Some had 20% plus or more uh, bear market rallies, uh, but you always see a significant acceleration of downside convexity towards the end of the process. And I'm not quite sure we've seen that significant acceleration of downside convexity, nor have we really truly priced in some of the positioning cycle dynamics or valuation cycle dynamics that we've we've highlighted really since the beginning of the year. Yeah. And this is where it's important. I mean, listen, we're all so trained to sort of want to try to buy that dip, want to try to find a bottom because, you know, there will be opportunity when things do change or when we do shift. It's just really difficult. And I would encourage you all, this is where sizing your risk, super important as well. Um, we've got a series out about risk control out. Mark Ritchie did a whole, sat down with some of the best in the business to talk about all the things you should be considering. Um, and Darius brings it all up as well. When you're thinking about something like that, so I encourage you all to go check that out because it's really, really helpful at a time like this. And we're all thinking about the same thing. We all want to, you know, grab that opportunity. Um, but you, but you do have to be careful. Um, question about we get this. And speaking of the volatility and how to, you know, if not make money, at least protect what we've got. Um, this question comes up from time to time, Darius. That's gold. Do you think gold is a good investment in this economic climate? From Tess on the RV site. Oh, I have no idea on gold. I've been saying that for months now. I'm, I'm proud to say it too, because I think the, the <laughs> we as talking heads, um, you know, you know, fiduciary stewards of your trust and, and you know, you know, co-stewards of your capital, you know, we always feel like a pressure to come up with answers. And the reality is, I don't have any clue what's happening with gold right now. And maybe yeah. there's a geopolitical risk premium priced in there, um, but maybe there's also you know, obviously rising real interest rates on the long end of the curve as weight on gold in recent months. It's bearish. From the perspective of our volatility just momentum signal. So I just as soon roll with that in the absence of really truly understanding what's fundamentally driving gold now. We know it historically has fundamentally drove gold. You know, it's obviously been the dollar and real interest rates, but clearly that's not been the um, the key the the key driver of the trade, at least in the last kind of six months or so. Yeah. I mean it's um it, it, but by the way, speaking of really experienced gold's befuddling everybody i think like a lot of hard, a lot of people are having a hard time i mean there's people there are people who still you know have a lot of conviction around gold but even people who like it, even some of the commodity guys that we talk to um people who are in that space or it's a it, there's a lot of cross currents with gold so it's it's really tricky right now but i'll keep we'll keep asking about that test because it does come up a lot we're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners we'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the real vision daily briefing you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, question from Casey on the exchange. Uh, 
Oh, this is interesting. Okay, I'm reading this in real time. Apparently, I'm the only one who's still looking at counterparty risk. You're not the only one, Casey. I've been using USDC to hold dollars since last year. Do you think it's a safe bet with possibly more risk out there than most are willing to assume? I'm really worried about exchange insolvencies, and I don't want to use an ETH ledger. There doesn't seem to be a safe place. I think this really um, is giving voice, Darius, to what a lot of people are concerned about. They're just Let's remember, the Fed's rolling off its balance sheet. We've just started of that process. It's feeling a little calmer this week, but we know last week there was a moment where it, it does seem like it's still a very fragile environment. How are you thinking about that? Yeah, so I uh, completely agree with, uh, well, forget the, the person's name who asked the question, but Casey, Casey, yeah, definitely agree with you on con- concern about counterparty risk. So uh, of the 42 factors, uh, market-based factors in our, in our global macro risk matrix, which we use to now cast that market regime process that we discussed earlier, uh, for OAS spread, counterparty risk, at least in the interbank counterparty risk, uh, is one of those factors, and it's bullish from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. That is that is bad. And what the OAS spread measures is is a spread between you know unsecured interbank lending and secured uh, interbank finance. So that that's an issue. So you're you're seeing counterparty risk rise across the traditional finance space, which very clearly is 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 a, is a coincident to leading indicator of counterparty risk rising broadly. Um, or actually, it's probably a lagging indicator because one thing that typically happens when you get the liquidity cycle, um, you know, kind of woving in reverse this liquidity cycle downturn that we're currently mired in and that we pres- accurately presaged, uh, you typically see liquidity dry up on the fringes first. So you mm-hmm. go to, you know, it's this, the poop coins, you know, for lack of a better word, then it's the, you know, the main cryptos and it's the, 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 the you know, it's the main cryptos and, and ARC stocks and it's the main tech stocks. And then, you know, they're going to come after Apple at some point, right? Uh, if they haven't already in size. And so, you know, that that's kind of the how this whole process works. You know, liquidity, once it's drying up, you know, you, you run out of places to hide. And that's kind of the point, which is why I've been saying for six months now, cash is king. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need to be fully invested at every point in time in the x-axis. You don't need to be fully invested at every interval. What's mat- What matters most is protecting your hard-earned net worth or your client's hard-earned net worth if you're a professional investor. And sometimes the decision to raise cash might be counter to your investment mandate or might be counter to your desire to generate return as an individual. But guess what? It's better than losing 30, 40, 50, or 60, 70, 80, 90% of your money, depending on what asset class uh, you were levered long in at the top. Yeah. Yeah. Great point, Darius. Uh, I want to ask you, um, uh, Casey mentioned being reluctant to use the ETH ledger. The the pain in crypto has just been really, really difficult to watch. And, you know, uh, anybody following that space, there are concerns about, uh, you know, someone having to step in to to bail out or, or to buy out another a uh, firm that was struggling a bit. So what what do, what do you see, you know, do you have any sense of are your indicators it's it's I know the track record you've been looking at it for a while it's still relatively new asset classes. What are we looking at here? I mean, it, it, is there still a lot of downside? Do we have any sense of where there's any support? Yeah, so I got um so is there any support? So we've held 19k support which has been our our sort of, you know, sort of <laughs> it happened way sooner than we thought it would happen, but we always thought that was the sort of the the target zone for crypto go back, you know, a few months ago on this program, we said that out loud. So don't, don't shoot me for saying that because uh, it happened. It's, it is what it is in the market. I'm concerned just based on where we are in the broader liquidity cycle that 19K is not going to hold. And I, I, quite frankly, there is no support beyond 19K or beyond the prior highs of the prior cycle. When you lose support, like, like a chart that's breaking out to new all-time highs, there is no resistance. You know, you might get technically overbought on a short-term basis, but there's no actual resistance. 
Same way if you go break 19K and you break the prior cycle that highs, which we you know tested this past weekend, you break those, there's no support, right? People are going to start dumping in mass and people are going to start going after various counterparty, various exchanges, various, um, you know, sort of, uh, I forget what they call it, you know, these sort of, um, you know, these, these sort of risk metrics that people we think are safe currently, you know, are these companies like, you know, MSTR that people think are safe currently, but they may, you know, ultimately prove to be safe, but may not be, you know, may not feel so safe in the moment. And this is the problem with, I think, you know, a lot of the on-chain analytics generally, right? Like a lot of the on-chain analytics or the sort of um, analysis that's endemic to the crypto space is fantastic. It's actually some of the best analysis out there in the sense that you have full access to all of the data in a way that we do not have in traditional financial markets. So it's actually really thoughtful and deep analysis. But the problem is when the cycle turns, none of the stuff that matters is on-chain. You know, the liquidity cycle is off-chain. The growth cycle is off-chain. The inflation cycle is off-chain. You know, the profit cycle is off-chain. You need someone who understands all these off-chain cycles in order to actually get the asset class right. So, you know, kind of mm. going back to start for the long-winded dot trap, but just going back to answer the question, you know, if we break support, there is no support. Who knows mm. what the ultimate lows are? Yeah, no, no, great stuff, Darius. And and the 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 sort of headlines that I was referring to, and we'll have, uh, you know, remember we're, we're doing crypto unwrapped. We have a, you know, full detail on that as well as the whole team being all over this. Um, it was, you know, the headlines of Sam Bankman fried um, stepping into uh bailout, basically BlockFi and Voyager Digital. Oh, yeah. It was just the latest headline, but, you know, we, we just have had a, you know, there's just a lot going on in that space. So there's a, a lot of risk and, you know, again, against the fragile market, you can understand why people are concerned. Um, so, you know, Darius, as we look out, what are you, what are you going to be focused on? So, I think it's so interesting now that we're sort of starting to see some things come in the data, but you you still have, uh, you know, reports of huge demand. We see reports at the airport; people are going crazy. They're going on vacation. You know, depending on where you choose to look, look, things look really robust. Or it looks like, you know, we're kind of headed off the cliff with the economy and things are going to slow rapidly. What are you looking at as sort of forward leading indicators that you think are going to be most important? Where should we all be looking? Yeah, so the leading indicators that matter most in terms of influencing the growth and inflation cycle are still very much pointed to the upside on the the inflation cycle and very much pointed to the downside on the growth cycle, which implies eventually on a lag, because inflation is a lagging indicator, the inflation cycle is likely to roll over. So um, you know, just in terms of, you know, kind of the things that, you know, we're trying to, what we're really open to do by having all this cash. One, I think the number one thing that's sort of on a lot of institutional investors, you know, kind of like myself or thinking to lick, we're basically all licking our lips and, and rubbing our fingers together for the opportunity to really buy bonds in size. And maybe we missed the ultimate low already, uh, but ultimately we're going to all start to get signals one by one that that's the next place to rotate into. I mean, duration, don't 30 year treasury bond could rally 20, 30% from here. You know, by you know the ultimate time, the Fed ultimately pivots out of this, out of this, out of this nonsense. And then on the pivot, I still think that's the number one thing to watch uh, as it relates to you know when do you start to buy uh, risk assets. You know, when, you know, I think you know investors keep asking me, you know, I've seen this price here reach or I've seen this valuation reach, therefore it must be time to buy. Hold your nose and buy. Dollar cost average all the way down and mm-hmm. blow up your kids' college tuition. You know, my my point is, you're not going to get a low in risk assets until one of two things have happened, if not both. One, the market is ultimately priced in the depths of the full, the full depths of the growth slowdown. Uh, maybe you can argue the market is priced in a very mild recession, but if the market goes down another 20, 30% from here and credit spread is widened another two, 300 basis points from here, it will not be a mild recession. There'll be a much deeper recession. So be, be aware of that because the market is a leading indicator for the economy, not the other way around. 
And second, you're not going to get to the bottoms, ultimate lows, anywhere near the ultimate lows of, of risk assets until we priced in the full brunt of the liquidity cycle downturn, which is a coincident indicator to markets. It is not a lagging indicator to markets. This, this sort of concept of, you know, Fed reducing its balance sheet, you know, Treasury general account balance being, you know, cyclically elevated, reverse repo looking like, you know, straight up like a roller coaster ride to the, to the moon. I mean, all these things are happening in real time and they're draining liquidity out of the system incrementally, day by day, week by week. And you cannot price that in. It's a technical dynamic that ultimately sucks liquidity out. So until this stuff stops, uh, which again, we don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. And but anytime soon, I mean, over the next few months, um, it's very unlikely we've seen the lows in risk assets, the ultimate lows. And there, there is our cautionary tale. Um, but you're right, because it's a question we get all the time. And again, this is we've been programmed. We've been in this regime for a really long time where there has been, you know, um, the Fed out there pumping all of this um, or at least a put and kind of creating these easy money conditions. Um, and, you know, we've seen stocks do that. So everyone is conditioned to sort of get in there and, and dollar cross average in. So I think we need to take a step back and really think about what's happening. So thank you for that, Darius. Great conversation. Thank you all for the questions. We will be back same time tomorrow with the daily briefing. Andreas Deno Larson is going to catch up with Weston Nakamura. So be soon. Be sure to tune in for that. And in the meantime, take care and good luck out there. Thanks, Darius. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.